Welcome back to The Digital Dive, a conversation about tech. My name is Jacqueline. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Darsh. I am your other host. And this week, we actually have a very, very exciting guest on. We have Zach on the podcast this week. He is actually the host of the amazing channel on YouTube, Mr. Jerry Rig Everything. So if you've ever been on YouTube and you've wanted to figure out how to fix a device or open a device, or even you just want to see something get absolutely destroyed, this is probably the channel that you've gone to. Zach, if you want to say hello, give yourself a little... I guess, introduction to the audience. Yeah. So I've been on YouTube for around 10 years now. We were just doing the math before the podcast started and uh, it's quite a bit of time and there's been quite a bit of destruction as well as construction on my channel. I can do a little bit of both. So it's been fun. Yes. It's wild because I remember the first time that I met Zach, we were at a Samsung event and I remember like the reps talking about whether or not they send you devices because unlike most traditional tech channels, when you get sent a device, it's not like, oh, like put it through its paces and review it. It's like, take this thing apart and let's see how durable it is. What was like the, I know the story already, but for the audience, what was your catalyst for getting into that? And then why smartphones? So when I first started my YouTube channel, I was doing more of like, you know, motorcycles and Jeeps and stuff like that. And then I realized that, you know, there is a viable business within YouTube. And, but if I wanted to grow my audience, and grow my business, I would have to make videos about things that were more interesting to a larger audience. And so cell phones, everyone has a cell phone. So I noticed that if anyone was going to repair their cell phone online, they had to watch like a 45 minute video that wasn't concise and to the point. And so I realized that there was a huge um, opportunity there where I could make short, concise cell phone repair videos and kind of go from there. And then I realized, you know, if I wanted to expand past that durability tests and other things. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's super interesting to me because I, I feel like you're super entrepreneurial in a way that like probably a lot of your audience doesn't know. Obviously you've created the not just a wheelchair. Is that, am I getting the name right? Yes. The business is not a wheelchair. And then the product that we have is called the rig. Okay. Amazing. And I think that with that, like, and we'll talk about that later in the podcast, but one of the things that is pretty amazing about you is obviously you have all the knowledge about right to repair and like how to actually take apart and like repair a phone. But then you also are so smart and business savvy. And then you also have ethics, like you're a trifecta of all the great <laughs> things. Um, but I think that that's the thing, right? Like what I remember, I watched an interview that you did with What's Inside and you were talking about how like you just felt like smartphones were a bigger audience. And then also in that interview, you mentioned that you realized in terms of like being like accessible to a lot of audience, if you weren't going to be on camera, your voice had to be interesting. Can you talk me through a little bit like the creative process of figuring out your style on YouTube and kind of how you went about like realizing that like the voice was part of the performance? Yeah. So when I first started YouTube um, and you can go back and watch these videos, they're still up there. I've never like deleted a video off my channel. Um, I was just like super to the point. Like I, that was my whole thing, like get in, get out. I hated tutorials where it'd be like, all right, this is how you do this. Oh, and here's my dog. We went to the grocery store today and then back to the tutorial. And so like I went on that hard, but then I realized that if I were to throw like a little joke in there or whatever, like people would just eat that up because it was like serious, serious, serious joke, serious, serious, serious. And then I realized, you know, even beyond that, that if I made my voice entertaining throughout the video as well, then it would get the watch time would extend. People would comment more often. I feel like what we're doing right now is more of my normal voice, but when I'm in you know, YouTube mode or whatever, like I go super like golf announcer, like, you know, all those fluctuations that kind of keep people there longer. It draws you in. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's so interesting because like the tone of your voice is actually one of like the most powerful storytelling tools that we have. 
Um, and I feel like you really utilize it, but not in a way where it's like, what's going on guys? Like there was definitely that style in like 2015. And I think that what's special about yours is that it feels really intentional to like telling the story better. At what point in like your journey were you thinking about things like watch time and storytelling? Cause I think like now that's something that a lot of YouTubers talk about, but like earlier on in the journey, I, I feel like it wasn't something that people were thinking about as much or at least talking about as much. Um, I think it was for me when I first started, I wasn't thinking about watch time necessarily. It was more of just like throwing all of the videos possible at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, I was really, I started my channel with the idea that I was going to help people do their projects. And then I realized very quickly that there was an opportunity here to like make money on the side. Yeah. And so money, I think was like my primary motivator of just, like, I think I have a video of me melting crayons with a lighter on my channel, like a really long time ago. It's just like, okay just random, random videos. And I remember back in the day, YouTube would tell you like how much money you made every single day. And I was looking at like my monetization and it'd be like, oh, I made 10 cents today. I made 25 cents today. By the end of the month, I can buy one hamburger. And I was just like, this is like so cool. It's the coolest thing ever. Um, obviously you can make quite a bit more money now on YouTube, but yeah. So I would say money was my biggest motivator. And then after that, after like my initial growth, then we could like fine tune and think about watch time and stuff like that. But it was more about how many videos I could get on the web at once. Do you feel like there was also like this creative passion to make the videos or for you is the more exciting part, like the knowledge of the phone versus like the video production elements? Yeah, more of like, I wouldn't say I'm like necessarily like a, a like a camera fanatic or anything. Like I'm not about like setting up with perfect lighting or anything like that or getting the colors all correct. Yeah, it was mostly just about like the storyline behind the video instead of the aesthetic qualities of the photography. Yeah, one of the things that you do that uh, someone actually asked me to ask you about on Twitter was you include like the sounds when you're like scraping the metal on the phone or something. When you edit that, are you listening to that back like a million times or are you just muting it? So it doesn't bother me anymore on most phones. Every now and then I'll be like, oh yeah, that was a good one. But when I first started my durability test, I cut that sound out. And so, but, but then I realized that if I left that sound in, some people would comment about it. And those comments are what like drives your interactions and makes the video more popular. And so, and sometimes I even bump that sound up. up. <laughs> it's so fascinating because I think like <laughs> as a creator, there are so many things that we do that are like strategic that like come off as like effortless to the audience or like intentional. And it's just like, oh, that's part of it. But it's fascinating to hear you talk about like the creation process because it feels to me like you've done so many things like from a really like entrepreneurial and like logical standpoint. And when I'm watching one of your videos, I'm just like, wow, like Zach's great. Like this is just a really good video, but I'm not necessarily like thinking about like, oh, you're doing this for this reason. Is there anything else that's like part of the video process that you like realized worked and you're like, all right, I should do more of that? Um, Two things. I think obviously when I first started, the money was a really big aspect of it. And I was like, you know, 10 cents a day and 25 cents a day is like really, really great. But at the same time, like it would be nice if there was more money coming in as any entrepreneur would, would say. And I realized very quickly that if I um, used like an affiliate program, because every single video that I made was like a repair video. And so it's like, you know, you can buy your repair parts here, you can buy your tools here. And then like Amazon has their own affiliate program. There's different cell phone parts companies that have their own affiliate program. And then I could make, you know, a portion of every sale that would go through that. So that was like a conscious decision. Like, yeah. you know, Hey, here's how to do this. Also, you can buy this part online and I'll leave that for you in the description. 
And so that allowed me to quit my job at, um, after two years of doing YouTube and about 30,000 subscribers, um, wow. I, was making, I was making about $30,000 a year, which was equal to my day job. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, and then I could just quit my day job and like hit YouTube full time. Yeah. Because you were doing college and YouTube and full time at the same time for a while. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. It's pretty busy for a while there. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. I, like, I, I'm just, I'm thinking about that. I'm like, I, so I just finished uh, my college degree. I just moved home now. And I, I just, I tried keeping YouTube going through the first two years of my undergrad and I absolutely could not do it. Like, because the amount of time and commitment you need to do that is absurd. So really hats off to you, man. That's, that's incredible. And you were working at a repair shop, right? So it was kind of like related in a way. Like, do you feel like that experience of working at the repair shop is like what influenced like, or informed like all the knowledge that then you got like for making a YouTube channel because I like you're experiencing your avatar in real life, right? Like the person you're making the videos for is also the person that's like kind of coming into the store. Yeah. And it was really helpful because I had kind of unlimited access to phones that needed repairing. And so I didn't Ooh. have to go buy all my own phones starting off. I didn't even think about that. That's, that's actually, actually really yeah. smart. Yeah, yeah, that's clutch. All right. Well, I want to also talk about, I think one of the things that like when I see in the headline, like you're the first person I think of is right to repair. I think that it's obviously been a huge topic. We've been seeing, for anyone that doesn't know, just a quick summary, right to repair is basically like a lot of people want the ability to be able to repair their devices without the manufacturer. And a lot of manufacturers like Apple make it really difficult to do that. Like they limit, if you're approved by Apple to do repairs, you're only allowed to do certain things. They can audit you down the line. There's a lot of information on it. Zach, you can probably give even a more thorough explanation, but there's also been some updates and improvements happening in the last year with right to repair. What would you say is like the state of right to repair right now? And where do you think it's going to go in the future? I think people are realizing how important it is. There was kind of like a phase back in the day where people just didn't care as much. But now as things are getting like way more expensive and like breaking sooner, it when it hits home, when it hits your wallet, people start caring a lot more about it. And so it's nice seeing that transition to people wanting to be able to fix their own stuff or at least take it somewhere local to be fixed instead of shipping it off or just, you know, not having it anymore. Why do you think it's like such a complicated issue? Like, because I, I, I think obviously it is more nuanced than I'm about to make it seem. But a lot of people would just argue like you buy the device, you own the device, like you should be able to do what you want with it. Why do you think like there is like this red tape around certain repairs that you can and cannot do? I mean, I get it. Like I get why Apple doesn't want people inside of their phones, mostly because like I've seen what happens when people repair their own phone. Yeah. Um, not only from like the comments of my videos were like, oh, this is way harder than it looks. And like, or when I actually had a shop and people would bring in their phones that they had tried to fix and ended up being worse off. And then, you know, it becomes a liability for the manufacturers. And like, I, I do see both sides and I do see the complexity of the situation. But at the same time, if we are going to get a hold of, you know, the whole climate situation and like not throwing batteries in landfills, like we do have to meet in the middle and make devices more repairable in the first place. So do you think that that comes down to then how like the devices are initially manufactured? Like, what would you change? Like if you're Apple, you're doing the next iPhone, what differences need to happen to make it like more repairable? Um, I think they should stop gluing it shut for one. I think, you know, no one really cares if there's some screws on it. Like, you know, that would be really, yeah. really helpful. It also would be the recyclability, I think is almost even more important than the repairability because like right now phones, like people can have an iPhone last for three, four five years and it's not crazy. But then at the end of that, like you're not going to resell it for a whole lot of money after five years. 
And so it needs to be recycled. And so one thing that electric cars have been doing that I think is a really great um, idea is that um, you can take your electric car and drop the battery out of it. And the battery itself doesn't need to be taken apart in order to be recycled. They take the battery, throw it in a giant blender and like crunch it all up. And then they, wow. they float it. I think they freeze it first before they throw it in the blender. And then they float it because all of the different minerals inside, like the cobalt, nickel, lithium, they float at different, they have different buoyancies. And then they can just scoop off the layers and refine them and then use them in a new electric vehicle. And so it's like electric vehicles have it figured out in a way that cell phones need to get to the point where you can just like toss it in a blender, float it, get all the minerals out that you need to. There seem to be better processes. The only problem is like with an electric car, like, you know, you're going to get like $20,000 worth of goods out of that battery with a cell phone. Yeah. That's like this big. It's just not worth it to most people. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause it's probably not an expensive part to begin with. Right. You need to be able to disassemble it first and then recycle it after that. Well, with, with like this entire right to repair, right? So would you, so I remember a couple of years ago, there was uh, the talk of like the Motorola Aura, I believe that was, or Project Aura, right? That was the um, modular phone from Google, if I remember correctly, at least mm, if I'm getting the name okay. right. So do you think that something like a modular phone would be a better way to eliminate e-waste because you'd be able to upgrade like certain aspects of the phone year after year instead of having to go and just buy a full new phone? Or do you think that right to repair, there's like, we're in this like middle ground right now, or, like this beginning stage. And I guess my question would be like in the next five years, aside from, I guess, leaving manufacturers the ability to, or asking manufacturers to leave like more screws on the phone, would you think that modular phones would become, I guess, something of the future now? Like again, like, do you think it's going to be another trend that we can follow up with that's going to show up in the next five, 10 years, maybe for this purpose? I mean, fingers crossed. Yes. But at the same time, like the technology inside of the phones is also improving really fast and it's hard to make super like cutting edge technology also be modular. Um, I think Fairphone probably has the best modularity going on right now because you can literally, you know, take a camera module out and pop in a new camera module from the from the next series of phones without buying the phone. And I think that's amazing. But like if you were to take, um, I don't have it here, but like the folding phones, like the Galaxy Fold and the Galaxy yeah. Flip, like yeah. there's, there's no way to make those modular and they're just so cutting edge, it'd be impossible. So I see both tangents moving forward, but I see the non-modular tangent being more appealing to a broader audience. Do you think that foldables are worth like the durability sacrifices that you get with them? Yeah, I think so. I think if my phone died right now, I would definitely consider considering getting a folding phone. Okay, that's my take too. Yeah, I just, I just reviewed the Fold 4 and at the end of the video, I was like, I'm switching back because I like having the best camera and like a phone that's more pocketable, but it's like the best it's ever been with foldables and it feels so close now where like, I think that like fold five, fold six, like it's just going to keep getting better in a way that like fold one was really impressive, but there were a lot of issues with it. And I think like durability is still a concern, but it feels significantly better to me. Yeah. I've been very impressed. Do you ever like consider when you're making a video on that, which is like bleeding edge tech, that your opinion on it is actually going to be like the one that most people care about because durability is one of the main factors with foldables. Do you feel like there's like a pressure or a weight with that of like, how do you like keep the optimism about tech, but then also give people like what they should know in the moment? Um, I think I started to kind of like come, I, I started to like realize that um, a couple of years ago, and then I've kind of dealt with that pressure by saying, you know, hey, it's okay to keep your phone for long periods of time. 
I mention like as often as possible, I'm looking for my phone and I'm talking on it right now. I mentioned as often as possible that I, I use a Galaxy Note 10 Plus, and this phone is like three years old. And I hope that my example as a tech influencer and someone who has access to, you know, hundreds of phones, that I am sticking with a phone that's a couple of years old for multiple reasons. And be one, the main one of which is that it's still totally fine and still totally competes with phones that are made today. Like technology does not improve leaps and bounds every single year. Do you not feel like you miss out by not being like on the latest and greatest? Like I think most tech YouTubers like to have like the shiny new thing just to have it. It's like FOMO. It's like, it's like a little bit of FOMO with like the, with the upgrades, I feel. A little bit of FOMO, but at the same time, like there comes a power when you like have the self-control and you're like, mm. no, I don't need it. Like I got you. you. Know, if you have all these donuts in front of you and you're like, man, I could eat all of these donuts, but then you don't, you feel like oh, better about yourself. You're like, that's true. Like that accomplishment. It's, yeah. like, that's I, actually, I, 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 it's discipline. <laughs> that's actually such a funny analogy. I could have, but I didn't. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. I actually think that, I mean, I definitely get comments where like I, for a while was using an iPhone 11 instead of like upgrading to like the 12 or 13. And I remember I got a lot of comments like of people being like, I actually like, it makes me feel better that I have an upgrade in my phone. And so I definitely think there is something to that. I also think like there is like this echo chamber in tech where I think a lot of times like tech YouTubers think that people are upgrading a lot more regularly, or not more like often than they actually are. I think we think sometimes that they care about things that they don't actually care about. Like the MacBook's drama of like the fans, like most people aren't going to care. What do you think is like something that you see a lot in like the tech community that's like really talked about where you're like, I actually don't know if like general people care about this. Mm, I don't know. I think one realization I had a couple of years ago as well, though, is like I was looking at how many views people got on iPhone videos and like okay. the most top video from like Marquez would get maybe like five, six, maybe seven million views. But then Apple sells like a hundred million phones a year. And so like yeah. most people buying an iPhone aren't watching tech review videos on YouTube. Like we're actually a really small percentage. So it's kind of just like, you know, it matters. What we do matters, but like in the grand scheme of things, not really. Yeah, that's so that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, I mean, that actually is fascinating because I remember I was at an event with Board at Work last week. It was like a moto event. And he was saying that if you wanted to be like a fashion influencer, you would need like a million followers probably to even like get in the door. And like in tech YouTube, it's so different. Like there are so many channels that get invited to these events that are like 10,000 subscribers or 50,000. And it's because like, it's a much more like niche community in a way. Who do you think like you're making your videos for? Like, I think I make videos for like the tech enthusiast that like wants to be entertained and informed about technology. For you, it feels like you're probably doing that, but then there also probably is like this average consumer avatar that wants to like fix their phone. Do you think that's like changed over time as you've done like more of like the durability testing versus like, how to repair. Yeah, I think so. I think people find my channel if they're looking for something very, very specific, but then I hope they come back just because the videos are a little more entertaining than they expected. Yeah. Which is kind of fun. And like, you know, obviously there's the whole, over the years, my channel has like slowly evolved. Um, obviously we started with Jeeps and motorcycles, went into repair, then we did durability tests, then we did electric vehicles. And then lately I've been getting into like the accessibility space um, with our yeah with our not a wheelchair company and that's been like a whole different group of people who have been interested in like you know the elevator videos or like the stair climbing wheelchairs that we've reviewed i want to talk about that because i feel like that is first of all so amazing that you're doing that but also i think it's like a topic that needs a lot more attention on it and 
like you have, I feel like you do a really good job of like utilizing what you're really good at and then making it something that a lot of people can enjoy. Like for example, you were really good at phone repairs and then you made it like an accessible topic for everyone. I think the same thing with this wheelchair. Can you talk a little bit about the design? Because I think you notice like a gap in the market and then you filled it and like, it's just amazing. It's like crushing. Yeah. So for people who don't know, um, I started dating a girl who was in a wheelchair. Um, she had a horse riding accident when she was 18. And people think that she's my daughter half the time, but she's actually one year older than me. So I just want to get that out. Wow. <laughs> like, just use this opportunity to tell the world. Right? It's like, she's, I'm 34. She's 35. She's not my daughter. Um, but she, yeah. Anyway. So we started dating um, and uh, I realized very quickly that if we wanted to go outside and like, you know, through a lawn or something like that, or on a gravel road on a normal wheelchair, that's like impossible. And if we were to get like an off-road wheelchair, it would be, you know, 10 or $20,000, which isn't, you know, you, most dates don't cost that much. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I realized that if I took two electric bikes, welded them together with a seat in the center, I can make my own off-road wheelchair for way cheaper. And people really, really liked that concept and that idea. So we partnered with a local trike manufacturer and we are making off-road wheelchairs out of bike parts that are half the price and twice the specs of other off-road wheelchairs. And so we've kind of taken that concept and run with it. And we have a bunch more products coming out this year, which is fun. Well, you have more products coming out, like different things. Oh yeah. We just bought a whole building um, that we're manufacturing three more products out of. Um, that That's amazing. I was just going to say, like, I'm just looking at not a wheelchair and I don't like, I just have this I don't know, this desire, I guess, I really want to drift one of these. Like, have you tried drifting or like trying to <laughs> just do anything like absolutely absurd with one of these wheelchairs? Yeah. So we, the manufacturer, Utah Trikes, they actually had their, um, one of their guys at the shop, he put clear packing tape around the rear tires so they would just get rid mm. of all of the traction. And he mm. was spinning donuts around their shop. <laughs> oh my God. That's cool. On tile floor, which is pretty fun. That is wild. It's cool because I, I think you've talked about decreased world suck is like one of the reasons why you wanted to like show people how to repair their phones. This definitely plays into that as well. Do you feel like that's like your like overall like mission in any project you take on or don't take on? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously I want I want my videos to help people. Um, even if, you know, they're just like entertained slightly. I think that is a help in this day and age where a lot of social media is like, I don't know, a lot of social media doesn't feel you good, doesn't make you feel good after watching it. Yeah. You feel like inadequate or like yeah. overstimulated. Yeah. So I hope that mine provides a slightly educational, slightly entertaining, but also doesn't make you feel terrible about life afterwards. Yeah. No, I love that. I, I mean, I think it's so true because I think your content is so good because you're able to be honest about products while also like not sensationalizing, which I think is a really, really hard balance. And I feel like that is one thing that I actually like am not a huge fan of that's happening in like some of the tech community right now. It feels like there's like this a minor issue with the product and it gets like so sensationalized for like a title thumbnail. And I think like there were definitely opportunities where you could have done that and you didn't. Um, and I really respect and admire that. I think the audience does as well. So we actually asked the audience on like Twitter and Instagram for questions. There were so many. I picked some of my favorites. One of the questions that I thought was really interesting is Google or Apple, who do you think is better for privacy and for like build quality for their products? Oh man, I think Apple has done a really, really good job of um, the whole privacy thing. So I think probably, probably Apple on that one, but just gluing their phone together between two pieces of glass is just asking for, you know, broken, broken hearts and broken. <laughs> 
they, they need more screws and more repairability on their phones. I agree with you. Okay. Um, yeah. What do you think about California potentially banning gas sales in 2035? I know you're like a huge electric car proponent. Do you think like electric cars like just completely the future? Or do you think there's like caveats with that? No, I think it's definitely the future. And obviously California doesn't like stipulate what the rest of the states are going to do. But I read a stat the other day that said like, 40% of the vehicle emissions are from transporting fuel. And so like, if we can just, the more we phase out gas vehicles, the less fuel we need to transport and like 40% wow. is a huge number. That's a huge number. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't That's even realize that. And so it's like, you know, all the semis have gasoline going to all the different gas stations all across the United States. And the more we can phase that out, the quicker, like exponentially, those emissions will decrease. And is Tesla still your like company of choice with like electric vehicles? I am not attached to anybody. I think Tesla's like probably five years ahead of everybody at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not emotionally attached to anybody. Okay. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think like the truck stuff, electric trucks, like Cybertruck, obviously, but we're seeing a lot more electric trucks coming out. And I feel like that's going to like quickly catch up. Like Tesla's definitely ahead, but I feel like they also are like overly optimistic sometimes when they can get new products out and they're late with everything. And yeah. so if we get a company that's actually like more on time, I think that they'll be able to catch up quicker. Yeah, actually, I had a I had a follow up to that with uh, banning gas sales. So uh, I don't know, Zach, if you've seen the the new uh, Acura NSX, it's uh, apparently based on three motors and an engine. So you can go either it's kind of like hybrid, but also not, I guess. So would you think that that would be a stepping stool to going full electric or do you think this is like this is like a middle ground that we might get stuck in for a while where like we're not going to fully transition like do you think this is like a stepping stool or do you think this is going to might actually hinder our ability to move forward to completely gasless i mean i think it's a good stepping stone but also people should be wary that like you know people say electric vehicles have like 40 percent less maintenance or something like that and so there, there's less oil changes less you know issues with the motor less moving parts but when you take a complete gas powered vehicle and add the electric vehicle components on top of that, then you have even more parts to go wrong, more systems to fail. And like the repairability of hybrid vehicles is probably going to be worse than if you would just went full electric to start with. That's actually very interesting. I like that it gets people into the door of like the electric world, but at the same time, like down the road, those vehicles probably aren't going to hold up as well as a fully electric. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of people have like fuel anxiety. Like when I talk to friends about like Tesla, that's always the thing that they mention. They're like, oh, like I would love to go to a hybrid. Like I don't trust myself to just have electric. Do you think that like as someone that uses Tesla a lot, you've obviously talked about it so much. And I feel like you've also referred a ton of people to buying a Tesla. Do you think that fuel anxiety is like one of those things that's just like completely overhyped or have there been times in your life where you're like, ugh, like it actually would be really convenient to have gas right now? Um, so my wife is the one that would answer that question better because she's actually done okay. some trips in her, in her vehicle. Mm. I've, okay. I've owned my truck for like eight months now and I've never taken a road trip with it, but I've also never been concerned about like range anxiety or anything. Cause I only drive like 30 or 40 miles a day and I can go like weeks between charging Wow. Just wow. because I don't drive that often. That much. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't think, I think if people actually sat in, like, sat in a vehicle and like actually thought about how often they drive and they're, that they would never go to a gas station ever again, you know, it saves you a lot of time to just plug it into your garage at night. Totally. Yeah. And I think like also like it's just much better for the environment. I feel like we're kind of like a lot of like the newer generations, I feel like actually really care about that. 
So fingers crossed that continues. My last question for you, when you look at like overall, like what you want to do for like the next like five to 10 years, obviously you're doing a lot with like the, not a wheelchair, the repair stuff. What like project to you is like been the most exciting? And then is there any area that you want to like get into that you want to talk about? If you don't want to, if you want to leave it a surprise, we also can do that. Yeah. So I have some projects, obviously. So building my electric Hummer was like hugely fun and like hugely educational. And so I think at least one more project like that, like converting maybe a car or something this time would be really fun. But I think right now getting not a wheelchair off the ground, like we just bought the building, just hired like five more guys. That's amazing. I probably need like another year or two to get that like fully fleshed out and the new products out the door. And then after that, then I'll branch off into some new direction. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool that you're able to balance both because you're like pretty much doing a lot of the YouTube stuff by yourself, right? Like I know you've expanded the team a little bit, but it's mostly you. Yeah. So when I, when I built my Hummer, I had two really smart guys working with me. And so like, I'm obviously the on-camera presence, but they were the brain cells and you see them on camera sometimes. And so I do have people on my team, but like, as far as like core Jerry rig people, I hired an editor about five years ago, just one of my high school buddies. Wow. And so I film everything, send it off to him. He edits it, sends it back to me. I polish it up and then throw it on YouTube. And then I think we have like five guys over at Not A Wheelchair. So there's a lot of us, but the core Jerry rig is just probably just me and the editor. Was it hard for you to give up editing? Like I'm looking right now to hire an assistant editor and like emotionally, I don't know if I'm like ready for it. Like, I think it's hard. Yeah, it was super hard because especially I would see things, I would see people like Casey Neistat who was like die hard. I'm editing everything myself. And like, yeah. that, that was peak Casey Neistat time when I hired totally. my editor. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but now like he saves me like 20 hours a week. And there's only mm-hmm. so many hours in a week that you have and you can't buy more time. Totally. But you can hire more people. And so I have changed my philosophy quite a bit. And I'm still like, I still try to do most everything myself. And mostly just because I feel like I'm more faster and more efficient than, you know, someone else doing the same job. Totally. But I have, I am changing and growing and hiring more people. And I, I do enjoy it once they're hired. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, I've definitely expanded the team this year too. And every time that I've hired someone, I feel like I felt so good about the decision, even just like from a company culture standpoint. But I also think, I remember I was talking to, I think it was Jimmy, Mr. Beast. And he was like, even if like, let's say hypothetically, like they weren't as good as you are at like editing, but like you're right now only devoting 20% of your time to editing, they can devote 100% of their time to editing. Like, of course, it's going to be a better result and save you more time to focus on other things. And so I also think that I'm like shifting my opinion on that. I don't ever want to like give up editing completely, but I think also after Marquez hired an editor, I was like, okay, like if, cause I feel like in a lot of ways, like he sets the tone for like a lot of the choices that people make. And I think even like he has realized that hiring like an assistant editor can help you a lot with like getting time back, increasing videos, et cetera. Yeah. Doesn't he have, he has a relatively big team now though, doesn't he? He like- does. I think it's like eight or nine people now. The full studio people. It's crazy. Like literally just watching that. It's incredible to see how he's gone from like the apartment that he was living when he was in school to now like this giant studio and seeing a lot of creators actually just expand over time. Even Jacqueline, I remember like just having video calls when we were like maybe 15 years old and it would be yeah. like just us in our bedrooms, just like trying to figure out what the next piece of content we were going to make was. It's kind of surreal to seeing everyone kind of grow up. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it's amazing. I feel like the space has matured so much, even just from when Zach and I met. 
a couple years ago, or I mean, now it's probably four or five years ago, but um, I don't want to take any more time. You are the best. I love everything you do. And you're also just like so fun and likable. Thank you so much. If anyone wants to check you out, where can they find you on social media? Um, yeah, mostly YouTube, uh, Jerry Rig everything. And then uh, Twitter and Instagram, Zach's Jerry Rig is where I'm at. So it's fun to hang out with everybody. Did you have to change that because people kept saying Jerry instead of Zach? Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> a conscious decision to put my to put Zach in my social media handles. Yeah, me too. I, mine's NBT Jacqueline because people were never like learning my name. Yeah, you probably. I mean, yours is even worse because some people like just assume that Jerry is like your name. Yeah. Long story short, Jerry was my grandpa who was really good at fixing stuff, and so the channel. Oh my god, I love that. And just kind of like you know paying homage to him. So I love it. All right. Well, you're the best. Thank you so much for coming awesome. on. We'll catch you guys next week, 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Central. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thank you so much, Zach, for coming on. Also, before we go, I want to give a huge shout-out to Adil Constantine, as always, for the amazing intro and outro music. And if you guys haven't dropped a review yet on the podcast, definitely go do that. That's how we learn whether or not you guys like the episodes or not. So let us know what you guys thought or tweet us at DigitalDivePod. That being said, see you guys next Monday at 7 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Eastern. Peace. Peace.